You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Good morning, everyone. It's such a luxury to say good morning instead of good afternoon. <laughs> this is where I get to quote my passage from 1 John, my little children. This is the last hour for the last day. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, we have plenty of time. Uh, by the time I get at the end of a 10-day lecture, it, you know, sometimes you're trying to scramble to get everything in, but we aren't doing that today. We've done pretty good. Um, so uh, I have plenty of time. Uh, I will take the first hour at least uh, to do Second Chronicles. Then I'm going to do something altogether different, and then I'm going to drive off into the sun, middle of the sun, I guess, not sunset. <laughs> <laughs> We did some introductory work to First Chronicles at the end of last week, and uh, we'll sort of pick up in the middle. Normally, if I'm doing First and Second Chronicles, and I actually asked Jason if I could do this, although I ended up splitting them up, but uh, whether I could handle them together, because First Chronicles is a single scroll, and so dividing it, half of it into one week and half in the other week feels a little bit awkward for me, but I was able to, I think, do it successfully. So uh, I have saved Second Chronicles for, for this week. Um, how have we done this the last couple of weeks? Are you, uh, you uh, ready to go into something new? <laughs> You're doing early prophets next week, is that right? Yeah, so that means Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, maybe Jonah... Uh, Jonah's really put in there, and maybe Joel. Uh, that sounds about right. I've taught early prophets, but I can't remember exactly uh, where I did them last. Um, yeah, I know you've done, I think my school you did John and Paul. Okay. I think you've pretty much always done Paul here. I see. Okay. I know I, know I did early prophets in Western Samoa. That's been three or four years ago, something like that. Um, 
And I often do those prophets in SBSs, particularly Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I don't get to do Amos and Hosea very often because those are shorter books and they tend to be handled uh, kind of in-house, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but I often do the other big ones. Um, so anyway, anyway, we're going to take a look at Second Chronicles today. And uh, they've got me set up real tight here. Um, they told me I can move anywhere I want, but then they put the stool here and say, this is where it needs to be. So um, uh, I'm not always sure where my limits are. So if I walk out of the camera, somebody can haul me in with a big hook and <laughs> say, hey. <laughs> All right, just uh, there, a little bit of a review about Chronicles here. First of all, uh, remember that 1 Chronicles uh, is going to cover the life of David, and it roughly parallels 2 Samuel, other than it does not have the Samuel stories or the Saul stories. After the genealogy, it's going to begin right away with David as the king of the whole kingdom. So 1 Chronicles doesn't talk about the Civil War. It doesn't talk about David's outlaw period. Uh, it doesn't talk about Samuel and Eli and all of that sort of thing. It gives you a set of genealogies, and then you very quickly move right straight into David as the king of the United Twelve Tribes. Uh, and again, remember that First and Second Chronicles are not two books in the Hebrew Bible. They are one scroll. So they just kind of move from the end of what we call First Chronicles into Second Chronicles without a pause. Second Chronicles, on the other hand, is going to take us from the reign of Solomon all the way through the exile and the edict of Cyrus the Persian to allow the Jews to come back from exile and rebuild Jerusalem. So Second Chronicles extends the period quite a bit further than you have at the end of Second Kings. Even though largely 2 Chronicles parallels Kings, nonetheless, uh, Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, and that is the big moment in uh, the exile, whereas Chronicles is going to push beyond that and get on the other side of exile and begin to bring them back, and it links directly up with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, virtually all scholars agree that the Chronicle Scroll and Ezra and Nehemiah were compiled by the same person or persons. Uh, they're very similar in, in style, uh, Hebrew language style. Uh, the very end of, of Chronicles is reproduced as the first few verses of Ezra. So you'll see those verses are, are almost identical. So... The parallels between the chronicler's history and the king's history, it's not exact, but it is roughly parallel to each other. Um, it doesn't, as I say, uh, talk about David's outlaw period, and it doesn't talk about the northern kingdom hardly at all. Now, you just read Chronicles, was it yesterday? Uh, was that your reading yesterday morning? Yeah, you or Second Chronicles, is that what you did? You'll notice that there's very little mention about the northern nation. There are a few places where it does kind of incidentally mention the northern kingdom, but you're not going to have any of these long stories about Elijah and Elisha and uh, all of that, you know, the house of Ahab and Jezebel and 
the contest at Mount Carmel. That, none of that's going to be in Chronicles because Chronicles is focusing on Judah and it is probably compiled by exiles who were from Judah and they wanted their own national history sort of as Judah uh, and, and probably implicitly they're saying that Judah is the true Israel. Uh, they don't exactly say that because Chronicles often talks about the, the, all the 12 tribes, but sort of implicitly they're suggesting that um, sort of like some Christians, you want to be a real Christian, you need to go to my church, uh, that sort of thing. And that's sort of the way, sort of the way Judah was. Uh, they, they sort of had implicitly that concept. One thing you should have noticed, and I hope you did notice when you were reading it, is that 2 Chronicles contains a lot more detail about why things happened from a spiritual point of view. It's not just that so-and-so died or so-and-so had a disease or so-and-so got invaded by somebody, but behind the scenes, 2 Chronicles is regularly going to say this happened because the king was unfaithful or the people were unfaithful or there was some major problem with respect to the covenant. So while that's implied in Kings, it is expressed very directly in the Chronicles record. So especially it's going to focus on Solomon's building of the temple, uh, the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are the two really good kings in Judah and its history. So <clears throat> let's uh, review now a little bit about something we talked about at the end of last week. Why would the chronicler want to write another history? <clears throat> Sometime shortly after the exile, the uh, books of kings uh, or the, the scroll of the kings <clears throat> is brought together, which is the history of the Israelites from the time of the end of the judges until the exile. So they have a history. And it covers both the northern and the southern kingdom. But why would they want to write another one? Um, so let's see what you think about that. Why would they want to write another history? They're doing what backward? Okay, they, they certainly are looking backward and they're looking at it from a little further down the line than the king's record. So that would be part of it. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Cassie? Okay. Yeah. Well, it does emphasize some positive aspects. It yeah. does, yeah. Yeah, hindsight is is often very very clear. <laughs> yeah, Jason. I mean, I think it also helps, like, 
kind of part of it, but uh, it helps like get these things recorded closer to the place. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and I think that's really important because uh, you don't know what's going to leave this. Yeah, thing, sure. Uh, you know, out of, like on the first place, it's like you know, right. Well, it becomes a paradigm not only for what happened in the past, but what kind of trajectory are we going to have for the future and what should we be paying attention to? Everybody, everybody that ends up doing the right thing, things seem to turn around and, you know, but it always yeah. takes that as the last ditch. Yeah. You know, like, um, like, the, like, how many times did you get debris about, like, pour everything down and burn everything up and destroyed everything and threw, you know, threw stuff down and then the next generation, they built things up. And yeah. They, you know, like, <laughs> they did all this stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> Some of that is probably a little bit of hyperbole, I would guess. For instance, um, you've run into this phrase several times. They took all of the gold from the temple. And then the next generation, they take more. So, hey, wait, I thought you took it all already. Uh, so those are, you know, those are generalisms. Uh, I'm sure they took a lot, um, but all probably should be qualified a little bit. Uh, another thing that Chronicles Record does, though, is it has a much uh, more pronounced uh, emphasis on the importance of repentance. Uh, you're going to see that happening at various times in Chronicles, and God honors that. Uh, he honors people who turn to him. So uh, there are some special features that I think indicate the concerns of the Chronicle. One is that the covenant with David is is really central and the temple is very central. Uh, This is something that would not be true in the north. And so in one sense, the chronicler's record shows the striking difference between the northern nation and the southern nation. The northern nation has rejected the covenant of David. They have rejected the temple. Those are two of the single most important sort of symbolic things for the identity of Israel. In fact, almost every culture has certain kinds of things that are are what I would call uh, identity markers for the culture. If we were going to say something about, I don't know, let's say England, what would be identity markers for England? The English people. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. The queen. Everybody knows it's got to be the queen. (laughs) Um, What if that just disappeared? I mean, it would be, England would be different. (laughs) Um, There's a few other things too in England. Uh, uh, Pot pies. (laughs) um, (laughs) Fish and chips. Yeah, there you go. Um, Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, the cultural markers for Israel end up being the land, the temple, the kingship, and the Torah, or the scriptures. Uh, Of those in the exile, they're going to lose three out of four. They're going to lose the land, they're going to lose the temple, they're going to lose the kingship. They still have the Torah, and they do, in fact, become what sometimes we call the people of the book because that's the only thing they have left. Uh, They are going to be able to go back and reclaim some of the land and rebuild the temple, 
They are not going to be able to revive the kingship, however. That pretty much is gone after the exile. You have an attempt to revive the kingship uh, in the Maccabean period, so sometime in the middle to late uh, second century. But that's not really from the family of David, uh, so it's certainly not trying to maintain continuity with the past. <clears throat> so uh, the covenant of David is foundational. The focus on the covenant and the temple is very much, uh, very much uh, central. Uh, you find a lot of description in Chronicles about the service of the temple, uh, how they generated choirs and how the Levites functioned and uh, a, just a lot more detail than you would find in the books of Kings. Uh, and especially when leaders maintain a full and faithful pursuit after God and his covenant, God blesses those people. And when, on the other hand, they disregard the temple or they disregard the covenant or fall into some other kind of problem, then God holds them accountable and the king suffers and the whole nation suffers. So that's sort of the, the, the emphasis in the Chronicles record uh, as a little bit different than you find in the kings and probably one of the reasons why uh, this Chronicler's history was written. So as I mentioned last week, the Chronicler's record lists quite a number of sources. <clears throat> Whoever put this material together is pulling together a wide range of sources, and those sources are actually mentioned. We don't actually know who these people were. In the tradition of the Jews, the Talmud says that Ezra was the formative mind or person who's involved in pulling this together. Uh, that's a traditional idea. It's very old. It goes back at least to roughly the third century uh, AD. But on the other hand, tradition being what it is, it still is several hundred years older than the actual compilation of the Chronicles. So we're not sure how, how much weight to give to that tradition. <clears throat> so what other, what other books of the Old Testament seem to be composed of pre-existing sources? Any ideas about that? This is one, and this one is obvious because it names the sources. Some of them do, some of them don't. But can you think of other books that are compiled from pre-existing sources? Uh, maybe. Pardon me? Joshua? Yeah, that could very well be. It doesn't name much in the way of sources, but uh, could very well be, yeah? Well, the ones I'm thinking of especially are Psalms and Proverbs, because they're written over long periods of time. Uh, one of the Psalms is credited to Moses, and some are credited to Solomon. About half of them are credited to David, and then there's a variety of other people in there. Uh, and then in the book of Proverbs, you have this statement in the Proverbs that says the men of Hezekiah brought together Proverbs uh, from uh, Solomon and other sources. Uh, so at least you have some other books that are kind of like that. This uh, use of pre-existing sources is a long step toward what we call canon or the recognition of certain kinds of writings as special. If you 
if you don't bring them together, then they're not very special. But the very fact that you do bring them together means that these kind of things are special. They deserve special recognition. <clears throat> Obviously, in this part uh, of history, they're not using the word canon. That's a later term. But the, but the idea of recognition is certainly there and will continue on until the completion of the Old Testament canon. <clears throat> um, regarding the Old Testament canon, and, and maybe I should say a little bit about this because Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament canon. Uh, have you talked much about canon or how things kind of brought, got brought together? Okay, well, let me say a little bit about it. Um, the three big sections of the Hebrew Bible, which I've shown you slides of a couple of times, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketubim, or the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, those seem to be collected uh, at points in Israel's history. The first two of those, the Torah and the prophets, are clearly collected prior to the time of Jesus because we actually find them mentioned in books like uh, Sirach, which is in the intertestamental period. The book of Sirach is going to talk about the law and the prophets. Uh, and you're going to find that even in the New Testament, you have that phrase, Jesus will talk about the law and the prophets. He says the law and the prophets were until John, for instance, and then the kingdom of God is preached. Uh, Jesus is also going to talk about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms on one occasion. Now, that's important because the Psalms is in the third section of the Hebrew Bible. Um, officially, the Jews re-examined the issue of canon after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And the rabbis convened at a place called Yavna, and they rethought through the issues of what is, in fact, our scriptures, uh, and they affirmed what we call the Hebrew Bible. But that really was done even before their time. Theirs was not a new effort toward recognizing scripture. It was more of a re-examination of what had generally been accepted already. So even though we can't say some sort of date for the Old Testament canon, uh, the three sections of the Hebrew Bible are clearly there prior to the time of Jesus. And Jesus is going to quote from all of them. He's going to make references to the things in the Torah, things in the uh, prophets, and things in the Psalms, uh, and other, other kinds of writings like that. <clears throat> so the canon of the Old Testament um, is, I guess you could say, fixed uh, sometime prior to the time of Jesus. However, there is an anomaly with the Old Testament canon, and the anomaly comes with a Septuagint because there were a number of other books written by the Jews that ended up in the Septuagint but were not part of the Hebrew Bible. These writings were in Greek, not in Hebrew, uh, and they are things like First and Second Maccabees, Judith, uh, Tobit, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, those kinds of books. So those ended up in the Septuagint. As soon as you include them in, uh, in a collection like the Septuagint, that implicitly um, uh, sort of suggests that these are to be recognized like others are recognized. However, 
The rabbis didn't do that. The rabbis never included a fourth collection in the Hebrew Bible. They just have the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The intertestamental books were never recognized by the Jews as having the same status as the books that were previous. But what complicates it is that the Septuagint became the basic Bible that Christians used because it was in Greek. And most Christians spoke Greek. Greek was the international language by the time Christians came along. So <clears throat> what you end up having is you end up having the Hebrew Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, and then you have this collection of other works that is kind of in uh, a little bit of a fuzzy category. You have some early church Christian leaders that affirm that they ought to be treated as scripture. And you have some early church leaders that say, no, they shouldn't be. So for instance, uh, Jerome, who translated the Vulgate, what do you think his opinion was about the Apocrypha? You have no idea, I know. He said, no, these are valuable books. They're fine to read. We ought to read them. In fact, he translated them into Latin, but they are not scripture. Chrysostom, on the other hand, said, yes, they are. We've been using them for 300 years, and we're not getting rid of them just because somebody didn't like them. So you have sort of um, a difference of perspective that continues on in the Christian church, and it will continue on until the Reformation period with no official decision on these books. The official decision on these books actually happens by Brother Martin, who says they are not scripture, but they are valuable. So he translates them into German, but he puts them kind of in the middle between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are valuable for spiritual reading, but they are not scripture in uh, the sorts of things you would use to establish Christian doctrine or Christian teaching. Okay, so um, once Luther makes what you might call an official decision, the Roman church says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so they meet at the Council of Trent, and they formally recognize these books as scripture and call them second canon or deuterocanonical, if you want a $4 word, second canon. And so in the Christian church, there are two canons for the Old Testament going back all the way to the Septuagint. One is the Old Testament, and that's accepted by everybody. But then you have the intertestamental books, which are accepted by the Roman church and the Eastern church, but not by Protestants in general, although there are some Protestants that read from them in the same way that Luther would have suggested, as valuable to be read, appropriate to be read, but not to establish doctrine. And that's continued all the way until the present time. Today, we still have two canons for the Old Testament. Uh, Protestants is uh, the Old Testament as the 39 books. Uh, Catholics and Orthodox will add then the intertestamental books. Um, and they will, in fact, use those for establishing Christian teaching as well. 
Uh, it's, in fact, it's quite important some of the few passages in the Apocrypha for uh, official teachings in the Roman church or things like that. So if you want to read those kinds of things, and I encourage you to do so, uh, you should uh, get you a copy of the NRSV with Apocrypha or the RSV with Apocrypha or uh, any of the Roman Catholic translations, which would be like the Jerusalem Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible, uh, the New American Bible. Those are Roman Catholic translations, and they will have them. Now, what you will find in, is, is a difference between them in uh, the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. They will be in the section between the Testaments collected together. In the Roman Catholic translations, they will be sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. In fact, some of them are additions to books in the Old Testament. So in the Roman Catholic Bible, for instance, the book of Daniel will have 14 chapters, whereas in the Protestant Bible, it'll only have 12. Uh, the same is going to be true in the book of Esther, uh, and so on. So they, they, they're kind of scattered out uh, a, little, a little differently. <clears throat> so... In the early translations of Protestant Bibles, the King James Version originally had the Apocrypha in it. Um, that's a fact that is not, um, not really well known by people who are King James only people. They tend to think that the King James Version, you know, we read the original King James Version. No, you don't. The original King James Version has had thousands of changes by the first hundred years, most of them spelling and grammatical, but one big one is that after about a century, the apocryphal books no longer appear in the King James Bible. But they did appear in the King James Bible for about a century after it was translated. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know, whoever wants to read the King James Version, I have no problem with that. It's a good translation. Uh, it just happens to be in English that we don't use much anymore. Uh, and um, it also doesn't have access, the translators did not have access to the earliest manuscripts that we have access to today. We've discovered quite a number of much earlier manuscripts uh, that underlie the text uh, that we can use today that was available to the scholars from Cambridge and Oxford who translated the King James Version. Yeah. Uh, not, well, I wouldn't, that, they're certainly the main thing in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we have a wide range of Greek manuscripts that are much earlier than anything that was available uh, uh, to the Cambridge and Oxford scholars in the 16th century. Well, yes and no. <clears throat> Uh, John Wycliffe is the first major English translator to translate the whole, basically the whole Bible or whatever, but he is working from Latin. So his translation is a translation of a translation, and that's not the, not the way you want to do it if you can avoid it. William Tyndale, on the other hand, who's um, roughly a century after the time of Wycliffe, is going to actually be translated directly from Hebrew, directly from Greek but he is relying upon those manuscripts that are available to him, many of which came to England uh, after the fall of Constantinople and people are fleeing the East and bringing some of their manuscripts with them. Since then, however, 
we have discovered manuscripts that are much earlier that Tyndale never had access to or the King James Version translators never had access to. They just weren't known then. In fact, the, the, the underlying New Testament text of the Greek uh, New Testament uh, was, for the most part, about six manuscripts. We didn't have very many. Uh, today, we have well over 5,000 in Greek. That's a lot. Uh, the oldest ones mostly come from Egypt. The problem with early manuscripts is that they were often written on papyrus sheets, which are kind of a primitive sort of paper made out of crushed reeds that are put in a kind of a crosshatch and squashed down, and the pith kind of glues them together. Uh, it, it has an adequate writing surface. Uh, it's inexpensive, but it is biodegradable. It's subject to mildew, uh, so it has a lot of problems. So where we find manuscripts is mostly in Egypt because it's dry, hot, and uh, they just last longer there. Uh, you don't find many from Italy, for instance, or from France, or I don't know, which would be Gaul in the old, old world. So those kind of manuscripts um, are, are, are mostly from, from Egypt, from the dry east. So for instance, um, the earliest copy of Paul's letters which is scholars call P46. Uh, these would be uh, around AD 200. Whereas in the King James Version manuscripts, they probably had nothing very, very much earlier than around 500. Uh, so quite a bit later. Um, so anyway, that's just a little bit about manuscripts and canon. Uh, kind of uh, took a little rabbit trail there for a ways. Uh, but you might have questions. Yeah, Hannah. Yes. That's a question that <clears throat> can be answered in more than one way. First of all, the canon is, the word canon means rule. Basically means this is the, this is the, the way we evaluate or create a rule for what is and what isn't. Um, I would suggest, and I think most evangelical scholars like myself would suggest, that you have to have a certain amount of trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. If you're only thinking of canon and disconnecting it from the idea that God worked in the church, you have a much harder time answering that question. Uh, might even be almost impossible to answer. Um, but on the other hand, if you believe that God actually worked in the lives and ministries of the early Christian leaders, uh, then their decisions become decisions that you assume are not just human decisions, but they're decisions that are made through the work of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that God preserves what he intends to preserve and the rest are not. Then there are some anomalies. I mean, we know Paul wrote more letters than we have in the New Testament. The New Testament itself says so. Uh, what happens if you discover one of those? Do those get added to the canon? I don't think so, but I bet you I'd sort of like to read them. Um, if we found an epistle to Laodicea, I want to see what it says. Uh, or the early one that he wrote to the Corinthians before he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, I'd certainly like to read that. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that means they should be added to the canon. Well, 
Well, one thing that makes a difference is that if we're thinking of us today sort of in a little bubble, we are in a very short frame of time. But when we're looking back to the early church, we're looking at the last 17, 18, 1900 years of church history. So you have a, I guess what you would call a flow of the ancient tradition of the church uh, that uh, has carries weight that just something in the modern period can't. You do have voices that are arguing that we ought to reassess canon. Uh, there are some scholars who are urging we need to get rid of apocalyptic literature. That would X out the book of Revelation, parts of the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, probably the book of 2 Peter, um, maybe the book of Jude, um, they and they would like to add the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, which is Gnostic. Uh, and some of them would like to add even more Gnostic literature, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Philip. Uh, if that all happened, that would so radically change Christianity, it would almost be unrecognizable, I would think. Um, <clears throat> their goal is to fit the Bible. Well, this is my assessment of their goal. I better, better preface it with that. They might express it differently themselves. I think they are trying to make the Bible fit with cultural concerns of the 21st century. I think that's what they're doing. Um, they, they, they are back to this question we talked about the Northern Kingdom. They want to be relevant. And this is one way. Um, I, am, I think relevancy is um, overcooked. <laughs> Not my relatives. <laughs> Some of them might be overcooked too. I don't know. But, uh, but it's amazing that they don't learn that same lesson from the Northern Kingdom. Yeah, well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I think that helps us to understand why these these Old Testament histories have a place for us who are in the in the 21st century in the modern world. Uh, they're not just superfluous. And I think the early church was right in embracing the Hebrew Bible as Christian scripture. There was an early voice against that in Rome by the name of Marcion. Marcion kicks out the Old Testament altogether, gets rid of Matthew, gets rid of a number of books. He basically is left with mostly Luke and Paul. And he get rid of most everything else. And the early church condemned Marcion as a heretic, and I think they did exactly what they ought to have done. Uh, but his attempt to reconstruct Scripture became a real impetus toward Christians thinking more seriously about, okay, we think he's really wrong, but now we need to think about what is right uh, and, and let's go in, in, in a more positive direction. <clears throat> so that affected the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So all Christians embrace the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament. Two branches of the Christian church also embrace the Apocrypha. Uh, in some time, I'm an Anglican, so in some times in our churches, we actually read from the Apocrypha. Uh, we don't recognize it as scripture, but we do recognize it as valuable. 
And that's true of all kinds of Christian literature. I mean, you may be reading uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas a. Kempis. That's not in the Bible, but it's a very valuable Christian writing. Or you may be reading one of the books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and that's very valuable, even though it's not in Scripture. Or maybe N.T. Wright, who's a contemporary scholar. Um, uh, or, dare I say, <clears throat> Lauren Cunningham who is uh, not in the Bible either, but all of you read that, <clears throat> and uh, that's very valuable. <clears throat> Excuse me. So anyway, it, uh, uh, you know, when you think of the Apocrypha, I think you need to think of it in terms different than either all or nothing. And I think too many Christians have taken that position. It, it's, either, it's either scripture or we don't want to have anything to do with it. Th those are two extreme positions, and it doesn't need to be that extreme. Uh, well, I don't have a written list. Okay. I can name you some, though. Um, from the early church, I would include all of the apostolic fathers. That would be the seven letters of Ignatius, the Didache, First Clement, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, these are written as basically second generation to the apostles. And many of the writers in the Apostolic Fathers knew some of the apostles personally. So these are very, very early Christian writings. Uh, so I would include all of them. I'm a little, I say I include all of them. I'm, I'm a little uncertain about the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, it's a little weird. <laughs> so I don't know about that one, but, uh, but for the most part anyway, what we call the Apostolic Fathers, I would give a strong affirmation to. And I would say there are a number of early Christian writers that we should be reading. And that would include St. Augustine, Tertullian, uh, Justin Martyr. These are in the first uh, two or three centuries of the Christian church. Um, there is a rather large collection of the early fathers called the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, and it's about the size of a small encyclopedia. So it's pretty good sized. And you're probably not going to run right out and buy a set and read them all. But, but those are valuable. As you work your way through Christian history, some pieces are more valuable than others. Uh, if you get up to the period of the Reformation, I think everybody ought to read Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, his commentary on the book of Romans. Um, and if you want a little more fun reading from Luther, read Table Talk, uh, which is um, kind of conversations he and some of his friends have about stuff. Um, he says some interesting things in there that I don't think you would want to put into your theology book, but they're fun. Uh, not the least of which is that he practiced bowling in the hallway of his home and set up the pins as though they were devils, and he <laughs> bowled them down. You know, I mean, those, those are just funny, uh, but stuff like that. Uh, in more modern times, <clears throat> I would suggest you would do yourself a really big favor by reading the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This was the Lutheran martyr in World War II who was hung by direct order of Adolf Hitler. He wrote Life Together, The Cost of Discipleship, or I think the original title was just Discipleship. 
Um, there's a couple of translations of that one, by the way, which is probably his most famous work. Uh, and I like the translation just called Discipleship the best, uh, even though the other one probably has had more printings. But anyway, well, that would be someone in the modern world I think would be very, very valuable to read. And even people that may be a little older. I, I mentioned earlier Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. This is uh, further back, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very insightful, reflective, challenging look at what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Um, so I don't know. That's just a handful of... What was the title? <clears throat> uh, the Imitation of Christ. Thomas Akempis. Um, <clears throat> all right, I think I need to uh, wander back toward Second Chronicles here. Okay, very good. 11.30 be break. Good. So that, that's good. So <clears throat> the uh, chronicler doesn't change his sources, but he does add to his sources important data that you won't find in First and Second Kings. Uh, so let me give you a couple of examples. One of these uh, 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 goes back to the Samuel books, actually, where you remember when they were bringing the Ark of God and this one guy reaches out and steadies it and he gets killed and so on, everybody's upset and they decide we're going to have to... Hello, I hear music. Um, anyway, they, they stop the process. Uh, but then they discover in the Torah that only Levites are supposed to be carrying the ark. It's not supposed to be carried on ox cart anyway. It's supposed to be carried on poles by the priests and so on. And so that is described in the Chronicles record, but not in Kings. So it's a way of Chronicles saying, we need some added information here. And we need to realize why it was important to carry the Ark of God in the appropriate way. Uh, and Chronicles gives us that information. Another one happens to do, has to do with the, um, uh, with the usurpation of the throne by Athaliah in Jerusalem. In uh, that story, you're going to find that Jehoiada the priest is going to bring the army to arrest Athaliah She'll be executed and the new boy king will be installed. What you don't find in the king's record, but you do find in the chronicle's record, is that this army was made up of Levites. Why is that important? Because they come into the temple. No one's supposed to go into the temple that's not in the priestly family. And so chronicles makes it clear that it wasn't just the army in general, but it was a particular branch, I guess you could say, of the army that was made up of Levites. So they came into the temple, and that was, in fact, appropriate. Uh, so chroniclers, uh, at various points, give this kind of added detail that fills out the picture and sometimes uh, helps to avoid misunderstandings. Uh, there's kind of a, a, a pattern that you find in drawing from the past, um, when you read David's charge to Solomon, you'll see that it is very similar to Moses' charge to Joshua, this transition of leadership. And you find that again in Chronicles. 
uh, when the this dedication of the temple is described, you're going to find that the way it's described in the book of Exodus is very similar to the way it's described in 2 Chronicles. And you can read those side by side and you can see how the one is kind of taking the other as its, as its pattern uh, and expressing it in that way. So if you were to do like the chronicler and you were to draw from the history of Israel the best examples of how things ought to be, which is what largely the chronicler is trying to do. He's trying to show how things ought to be. He doesn't talk about the dark period of Solomon, the dark period of David. He talks about the good things. He's trying to show this is, this is the way forward. This is the good thing. What, what would you choose to talk about if you were going to create uh, a chronicles of the history of Israel? You've been reading this stuff for the last few weeks, and uh, 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 this is obviously a um, um, speculative kind of thing. It's not a right or wrong answer, but I'd just like you to think about it. What would you choose to talk about? What would be the really good examples of the way things ought to be that you could talk about? Maya. You want to go over here first? Well, he started talking. It's okay. All right, go ahead, Maya. You have the floor. Okay. Okay. What kind of specific stories? Um, similar to how, like, we're writing about Hezekiah and uh, Josiah. Uh, okay. Maybe a little about the purging of uh, pagan elements, yeah, uh, which are widespread. Back down their yeah. And yeah. How yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I buy that. That sounds good. Anybody else? Okay, yeah. Like all the high places, and not only that, but like when they bring him down, they also like disperse like the ashes, which I think is even kind of like significant instead of burning, like they even got rid of like all the ashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even like, because I put like a lot of the, hold on, sorry. They also did like a lot of concentration, they concentrated everything. Mm hmm. Yes. And so 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Both Hezekiah and Josiah celebrate the Passover in ways that had never been done for years and years and years and years. Yeah. We we have a word for that. It's called narcissism. <laughs> That's great. I think that's great. I, um, you've not given a huge amount of input in the last two weeks, but you just made up for lost time um, in one big, one big thing. It was great. It was great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He repented and God restored him as bad as he was. Uh, you know, that means, means I have hope. <laughs> we all have hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, partly why I want you to think about that is because once you start thinking through, you, I'm thinking, you are going to realize that the chronicler did a really pretty good job about pulling the best areas from the history of Judah uh, as sort of a, a marker for the future as to how to go forward. Uh, because the kind of things you're talking about are the kind of things Chronicles talks about. Uh, whoever he was, he did a really good job in pulling this stuff together. Um, in the Old Testament, the people of God comprised both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but each of them had a different set of values. Uh, so the first thing I want to ask is, what were the difference between the values in the north and the values in the south? And then secondly, is there anything comparable in modern Christian life? So what were the values in the north and the values in the south? How were they different from each other? I'm sorry? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Maya? Right off the bat, the North wanted to discard everything that had to do with the line of David. Yeah. They didn't want anything to do with the southern part and southern kingdom. Yeah. Sure. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the North, it's a bit like um, the cancel culture movement, because <laughs> they were basically canceling, canceling out. Um, uh, I don't know if I should make too strong a connection there, but it does remind me, the one does remind me of the other uh, to some degree. Yeah. Um, Cassie. Yeah, um, and the culture was a combination of Israelite and Canaanite. Yeah, and the South did their best, even with their messed up hierarchy. Um, they still did, at the heart of their thing, still had the Scripture law, and they yeah. were still um, protective of the, um, the promise that God had made yeah. them, um, and keeping David's bond on the throne. And they lasted another century and a half. So how about in modern church life? Anything comparable uh, about that sort of thing? Are you brave enough to talk about it? Maya. <laughs> uh, I, I can bring up, um, when I was in um, my government classes at homeschooling co-ops or training, we met once a week, and we would go over these political issues. Okay. For Alabama, which is in the Bible Belt, that's uh, <laughs> very progressive, I guess you would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, Anna. It's, it's a basic, is worship about me or is worship about God? Um, so, yeah, I think those are, those are valuable things to, to, to draw comparatively from some of these things. Yeah, Cassie. Oh, 
government, but it also was people who, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the pressure, but like kind of the down on, okay, what is Western and what is, mm-hmm. they, they have learned from instincts and like awareness and They do what? They clean house. Oh, oh I see, yeah. With doctors and everything. They, they, uh, for six months during COVID, they took that as an opportunity to shut down the church. Not shut down the church, but like, since they couldn't meet in church, they, um, yeah, they just kind of said clean house and they had, um, a lot more phone meetings. And I've noticed that with a lot of different churches now. They're, they're actually being very, um, intentional, thank you. They're very, being very intentional about what they speak. Mm-hmm. Well, at the very least, we see that these ancient stories have something to say to us. Uh, And that's part of why we embrace the Old Testament as a Christian document, is because it does say something to us. And it gives us some real guide. This was, in fact, the Bible of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, And uh, uh, I I think the idea that we should hear these ancient stories... Even, even in, in um, things like Bible studies and preaching, we should preach out of the Old Testament. We should teach out of the Old Testament, not just out of the New Testament. And that's nothing against the New Testament. I love the New Testament. It's the gospel. But it doesn't stand disconnected from uh, the rest. Um, <clears throat> all right. When the Davidic dynasty uh, is operating the way it ought to, then the king of Judah is not the ultimate king. The ultimate king is the Lord. And the Davidic son is, um, he's like a vice regent. Uh, He's not the ultimate king. And you find that expressed a number of times uh, in the Chronicles. For instance, in 2 Samuel, in in the covenant with David, it talks about your house uh, and your kingdom, but in Chronicle, uh, the Chronicles record, God says it is my house and my kingdom. Now, that's a slight difference in wording, but it's a pretty important difference in wording because it emphasizes that the true kingship is the Lord, not the sons of David. And David and Jehoshaphat themselves acknowledge that it is the kingdom of the Lord, you find this several times in the book of Chronicles, this phrase, the kingdom of Yahweh. So the kingdom of Judah is not just the kingdom of Judah, it's the kingdom of Yahweh. And the ruler of the kingdom of Judah is really working under the kingship of Yahweh and is supposed to be following, of course, Yahweh's uh, basic set of values. Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. Uh, The kingdom of Yahweh is in the hands of the sons of David. Uh, David's sons are the legitimate kings, they will not be cut off like the family of Saul, but at the same time, they must realize they are not fully in charge. Yahweh is supposed to be fully in charge. Uh, When it comes to the temple and its worship forms, those are very important to the chronicler's record, so there's quite a bit of detail about that. Uh, The chronicler is, uh, uh, I I think, going to give us a speech that that helps to understand the whole mindset of the South. Uh, 
and I want to read it uh, from your ESV. You can turn there if you want to, and I know you've already read this in your own, uh, uh, your own uh, reading groups, but I still uh, want to, uh, to once more review this in 2 Chronicles 13. This is Abijah and his speech to the northern Israelites. Now, the northern Israelites have, uh, have basically begun to invade the south. And Abijah is going to give a speech, a fairly lengthy speech, in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. And in this speech, you will see that he talks about the kingdom of Yahweh. Uh, he says... Uh, uh, in verse 8, uh, youth, youth are thinking to withstand the kingdom of Yahweh in the hands of the sons of David because you're a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made. Have you not driven out the priests of Yahweh, the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest that are, that are no gods. But as for us, and he's talking about Judah, Yahweh is our God and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to Yahweh who are sons of Aaron's. They are Levites. They offer to Yahweh every morning and evening burnt offerings and incense and, and so on. Uh, and finally, in verse 12, God is with us at our head and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. Don't fight against Yahweh, the God of your fathers, because you won't succeed. This long speech by Abijah really uh, sort of epitomizes the mindset that is the, the way the South ought to be uh, behaving itself. And in fact, where they were trying to behave themselves. Now, they did fall off of the wagon from time to time, but at least this is the, this is the way that they, they ought to have been. And so it's, a, it's a quite an important speech in the book of Second Chronicles. The relationship of David's sons to the temple is, uh, is, uh, is certainly central, and some of the figures like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, those are some of the most important leaders that maintain a relationship with the temple. And then there are other figures who don't, and they suffer judgment and discipline from God. So um, the temple and its worship are, are very central to the chronicler's record. Uh, so you, uh, even when Solomon dedicates the temple, you have a lot more information in Chronicles than you do in Kings. Um, so there's good kings and there's bad kings, but even bad kings can repent. And uh, uh, as uh, Annabal mentioned earlier, uh, I think it was you, uh, that even uh, a king as disastrous as Manasseh could repent. And God would honor that repentance uh, because he seeks those who will seek after him. So retribution and repentance are very critical parts of the chronicler's record. Those who repent, who turn back to the Lord, uh, they, in fact, are honored by God. God honors those who honor him. The negative example, of course, uh, is Saul at the beginning uh, because of his unfaithfulness, and you have a number of other figures, both positive and negative, that crop up through the rest of the record. Um, 
God's sovereignty guides the history of the Israelites, and he is the center of all of the, the most positive things that happened to that kingdom. So it is Saul, uh, I'm sorry, it is God who puts Saul to death, not just the Philistines. Uh, it is God who routs the armies of Jeroboam, not just the armies of Judah. It is God who destroys the Ethiopian army that comes against uh, Asa, not just Asa's army. All of these different kinds of events, the chronicler makes clear that the real success is owed to Yahweh. It's not owed just to human manipulation and human armies and human power, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so if, the, if in ancient Israel the true king uh, is going to be Yahweh um, and all the sons of David are simply under Yahweh is the true king. What does that say then about Christian leadership in the modern world? I once had a, I once knew a pastor who said this, you trust me with your soul, you should trust me with your money. I said, well, you're wrong twice. <laughs> Um, but you do find leaders sometimes who seem to lose perspective that they really are not the top dog. They are, God is the top dog. Oh, I shouldn't call God a dog. I, that's, that's bad. Uh, but but they, they, are, they are working under him. Even, even in one of his letters, Peter talks about the shepherds of the churches who are pastors, but he said, you are under the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is the Lord. You, you don't have free, uh, some sort of naked freedom that you can do whatever you want. Um, uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, uh, uh, but uh, it would seem to me that this kind of idea that you find in Second Chronicles is also applicable to uh, modern people of God as well. Yeah, Jason. letters, Paul is going to say, don't be too quick to ordain people. Use the expression, lay hands on them, but he's talking about ordination. Don't be too quick to do that. I think he's seeing there are dangers for people who get 
elevated too fast because they don't have the uh, history of faithfulness that would undergird them and sort of keep them online. They uh, often get out of out of perspective uh, in, 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 in their rise. And so uh, I think probably that's what Paul is talking about, why he says that. Um, and I think that probably means we need to be somewhat careful in our own approach to that sort of thing. It, it's easy in the Christian circles where somebody has a really good testimony and they seem to be pretty charismatic in their personality and they're a good speaker to just kind of jack them up really fast. Um, probably need to be somewhat careful about that, um, I would think. Um, all right, uh, it's 11.24. I'm just ready to finish up with some of the details of Second Chronicles. And um, I think this is a good time to take the break. And then I've only got about 10 more slides before I change and do something altogether different than, uh, than uh, we've been doing. Uh, so um, we're good in time uh, in, in our time frame. So let's, let's take our break now.